seated. Please open up to Romans chapter 8, verse 13, as we continue our study in this verse. This is actually week number 4 on Romans chapter 8, verse 13, in our little mini-series here as we're going through the book of Romans, a little mini-series in this verse entitled, Killing the Sin Within. Killing the Sin Within. We've covered... Uh, quite a bit of ground the last three weeks. This morning, again, I want to draw your attention here to the 13th verse, specifically to a phrase within the 13th verse. Let me just read it for you. Romans 8, 13. Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And here's the phrase I want to draw your attention to this morning. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, i.e. killing the sin within. The basic premise here is that if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been saved, put your faith in Christ, and been placed into Him by the work of the Spirit based upon the meritorious work of Christ on the cross in His resurrection. If that's true of you, then the reality is that you're redeemed, that you are justified in the eyes of God, that you are positioned, in fact, in the heavenly realms right now with Christ as a joint heir, the right hand of the Father. That's your position One that will be yours eternally. Guaranteed. But here's the other side of that. The earthly side of that is that is you still have a mortal body. And that mortal body has not yet been redeemed. That your mortal body as a follower of Christ is not going to be redeemed until the day that Christ returns. And when Christ returns, that final aspect of your redemption is going to take place and your mortal body is going to put on immortality when you see Christ. And this perishable body is going to put on the imperishable. And when that happens, that sin is going to be left behind permanently, entirely, completely, forever. But until that day, you living still within, connected to this mortal body, this sinful body, sin still remains there. And so that means that every day you have a battle. If you're a follower of Christ, every day there is a battle going on, whether you realize it or not, in which sin is trying to get the upper hand through your mortal body and bring you into its subjection and The Spirit of God that lives within you is seeking to put to death the deeds of the body by His power. So that's the reality. And so we're continuing this study on the subject of putting to death the deeds of the body or killing the sin that is within First thing I want to draw your attention to in this phrase this morning is the paradox. Touched on this briefly, but I want to hit it again. And I want to do so so that it doesn't seem like, or it's not confusing to you that Scripture is seemingly contradicting itself here because there is a paradox. Let me just point it out to you. Paul writes here that the follower of Christ, the the believer, is to put to death the deeds of the body. He also writes that the follower of Christ is to do that by the Spirit. So therein lies the paradox, what might look like on the surface as a contradiction. So here it is, we encounter a problem. What are we going to do with that? 
Because it seems like Paul is saying when he says by the Spirit in the second half of that verse that the only way you're going to put to death the deeds of the body is if the Spirit of God does it. That it has to be the work of the Spirit of God. And we spent some time uh, two weeks ago talking about that. And that is in fact true. It is the work of the Spirit that does the killing of sin within. It is only the Spirit that has the power to kill the sin within. And yet, in the same breath, in the same thought process, Paul writes, you put to death the deeds of the body. To the believer, you put to death the deeds of the body. Clearly here, it looks like he is telling us to do something. He's calling us into action. So it There's a paradox that rises up here. So what I'm wanting to do this morning is I just, as we begin, I want to first of all just have you focus on that paradox for a minute. My goal is not to explain away the paradox. It is not my intent here to dive into the literal meaning of the words here in the Greek and show you that although it looks like a paradox on the outside, it's really not a paradox. There really is no apparent conflict here in the text. And the reason I don't want to do that is because it's there. It is clearly there. It is undeniably there. In fact, it is deeply there. First of all, it's their invisible sight lying right on the surface. Only the Spirit can put to death the deeds of the body, and yet you put to death the deeds of the body. It's right there on the surface. Secondly, it's not only on the surface, but if you dig deeper into the language of the text, it actually gets far stronger than what it looks like on the surface in the English translation. The paradox grows because the implication of the context is, yes, it is only the Spirit of God that has the power to put to death the deeds of the body. And then the calling for us to be engaged in that, the Greek word put to death, That verb is given in the present tense, meaning this, that it is something that you are to be diligently engaged in in an ongoing fashion. It is a continuous activity that you're to be involved in. It is an activity that you're to be aggressively involved in continually throughout your life. So, Even when we look deeper, the paradox does not clear up. It actually stands out in starker contrast. And then thirdly, what about if we look at a larger context? I mean, maybe this is just the only time in Scripture where we are actually told that we have to aggressively engage in this fight against sin so that this must be a wrong interpretation because all throughout the rest of Scripture it says something different. Is that true or is this a common theme? Let's just look at the letters of Paul. Let's look at a few quotes from the same author and what he says and what he calls us to. Colossians 3.15. See if you hear anything similar to Romans 8.13. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 12.1 and 2. A couple chapters later in the same book we're studying. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're called to sacrifice something here. You're called to sacrifice your body. You're called to live in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. You are called to do that. It's not a passive statement here. To 
Present your body as a living. That's proactive, intentional. So that it is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. You see, there is action being called for in the life of the believer. Ephesians 4, 21 and 24. You have heard about him, Jesus, and you were taught in him to put off your old self. Action. Called to something specific. Not passive, but intentional and proactive. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, those verses right there show that the follower of Christ is to be actively engaged in this battle against sin, the putting it off, the sacrificing of life so that sin is killed, the putting to death the deeds of the body, putting to death what is earthly in us. There is clearly a call not to a passive stand, but to a proactive, intentional, aggressive, continual position and movement that we're to be involved in. Clearly, that's there. How about a couple of verses from Paul that actually doesn't just show what we're called to do, but shows the paradox of what we're called to do and what God does, like Romans 8.13 shows. You know, by the Spirit, it can only be by the Spirit, and yet put to death the deeds of the body. Is there any other verses that have both of those in them? Let me just give you a couple. First Thessalonians 5, 22 and 23. Abstain from every form of evil. That's something that you are being commanded as a Christian, being called to do. And yet the next verse says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. You see the seeming paradox there? You've got the command to abstain from every form of evil. And then the very next statement is, it's God who sanctifies. It's God, the one that makes you holy and cleanses you. You abstain from all the evil, God cleanses and sanctifies. And then even a stronger verse, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a call to do something. That's a, actually a proactive initiative that you're to take in your Christian life. You are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then the very next verse comes to the paradox. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. You work out your salvation for... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me give you the cliff notes on that or maybe the expanded version on that. It's God who works in you both to give you the desire to work out your salvation. Number two, the power to work out your salvation. And number three, it's actually God that works it out in you. Paradox. You work out your salvation For it is God that gives you the desire to do it and the power to do it and that actually brings it about. Paradox. So Romans 8.13 isn't an island in of itself. There is clearly a paradox there in which we are being called to something very distinct, very specific, continual, Activity, intentional, aggressive, lifetime of doing battle against the sin that is in our mortal body. And yet at the same time, it is only by the Spirit that that sin will be killed. So we can say it this way. Number one, there can be no say that again. There can be no killing of the sin within the believer unless the Spirit of God is the one that does the killing of the sin. That's 
half of the paradox. Here's the other half. There will be no. There will be no killing of sin within the believer unless the believer actively, intentionally, diligently, continuously fights against the sin to put those deeds to death. So both of those are true. Both of those are there in the text. Second thing that I want to do now is I want to look at the killing of sin and I want to answer this question so that you can understand better what it is I want to answer this question. I want to tell you what it's not. What the killing of sin is not. And then when I'm done with that, I want to show you in general terms, really important terms, what the killing of sin is. And then what we'll do next week as we conclude this mini-series is that we will actually talk about how to kill the sin within. So, What's before us now is this, what the killing of sin is not. Number one, the killing of sin is not an outward change. The killing of sin is not an outward change. Now, if you do what Paul says to do here, if you actually are obedient and you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, there's going to be an outward change. There will be an external byproduct if you do what Paul instructs here and you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. But that is not the essence of what killing the sin within is. It is not the outward change. Let me give you an example. The killing of sin is not an exchange of sins. It's not an exchange of sins. You see, what can happen is we can set one sin aside to pick up another. That's not the killing of sin. That's the bartering of sin. That's an exchange of one for the next. It's possible that as we grow and mature, I'm talking about just in our physical development, our emotional and mental development, that what we can do is that we can begin to act differently than we did in our youth. Just by natural process, we can kind of leave behind us the foolishness of youth, and what can happen is on the outside, it can look like we're killing the sin. Because we have an external change in activity, but that's not what the killing of sin is. It's not simply an outward change. You see, what we can do is we can exchange one sin for for the other, such as we could exchange outward sensuality for lust. There's no killing of sin there. There's a change in external behavior that people can visibly see, but there is no real killing of sin there. There's just been a bartering. There's just been an exchange. We could exchange pride for worldly ambitions. Let go of an external view of one to pick up another. The problem is sin is still there and it's still as black and it's still as dark. So the killing of sin is not just an outward change. Number two, the killing of sin is not intermittent victories. It's not intermittent or infrequent victories. You see, here's what can happen. I, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, really having been given a new heart, a desire to serve God, 
having the Spirit of God in me that's promoting holiness and righteousness of life, I can, in my weakness, in my flesh, I can give in to sin. I can give in to temptation and commit a gross sin. And the result of that is I'm plagued and troubled in my heart. I'm beat up over that. My conscience is in turmoil. My peace with God is waning. And so my conscience gets stirred up and becomes sharp and alert. And in that reaction, because I am now shocked at what I have done, shocked at my own sin, what I can do then is rise up against sin and really begin to push back against it and begin to be very alert and attent to how it might be moving in my life and be militant against it and on guard against it. But that's not the killing of sin within. Because what can happen then is as as I go through a period of time guarding against that sin militantly, that I get my peace back with God and the seriousness of that situation as time always does to us kind of dumbs that down and my alertness kind of wanes and my Militancy against sin kind of becomes a little relaxed. And pretty soon things can get back to their normal routine and the sin that lied dormant lied there like it was dead was only lying dormant and asleep, waiting for the conscience to come down, waiting to get back to the normal routine, and then it rises itself up again with all of its life and all of its vigor and all of its strength to exert itself again in our life. Give you some examples of that in Scripture. Actually, I'd give you a whole book, the book of Judges. We could just kind of see that from a wide-angle view for a minute. It can kind of paint a picture at times of what the Christian life can be like. There's sin rising and growing rampant, the book of Judges. Just the people kind of turn away from God, sin rises and grows rampant, and that's followed by bondage which what sin always does, it leads us into bondage. And then that bondage results in an outcry of repentance and God responds to that outcry and moves mightily in his mercy and his deliverance. Happens in Judges. And that's followed by a time of peace and prosperity. And then there's the resulting complacency and apathy in the midst of that peace. And then that leads to a rising again of sin and then the bondage that follows, and then the resulting cry of repentance, and then God steps in in deliverance, and then there's blessing and peace, and then there is apathy and complacency, and it just kind of goes like this in Judges. Seasons in the life of that nation where there were good victories and then a lot of seasons of just defeat and bondage. See, the Christian life can be like that nation as a whole. There can be just this falling into temptation and then the bondage of spirit and heart and mind that comes through that, the sense of that, and then the reaction against that and a real effort for a period of time to live righteous before God. And it looks like what happens is sin is dying, but it's just laying dormant and is just laying quiet until such a time as things return to the way they have been. 
That's not the killing of sin within. Those times of intermittent victories. Thirdly, the killing of sin within is not complete destruction. The killing of sin within does not mean that you come to a point where you absolutely and completely in this life eradicate sin and its movements in within you. That's not going to happen. Should you strive for that? that? That's the whole point. Yes, be about killing the sin within. That should be your goal. That should be your movement. But the reality is, as long as we have this mortal body, you're not going to totally eradicate sin within. So don't get discouraged thinking that's what you have to do. If you're not there thinking, well, you're a failure. No, you still have this mortal body. And as long as you have it, sin remains. I mean, Paul himself, Paul himself, what I would say would be one of the, sh- the brightest examples of Christian commitment said, not that I have already obtained or have already been made perfect, but I press on. In other words, Paul's saying, I still got some problems. I still got some ground to cover. I'm making progress, yes, but I'm not there. So the killing of sin within is not complete destruction. Okay. Third heading. I've looked at the paradox. Clearly we are called to something here. Something that the Spirit of God has to do, but something that we are called to do. Number two, we've looked at what sin is not. Now let's look at what sin is. And let me begin by reminding you of an incredible principle, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that, in other words, here's the purpose in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You see the same subject here? That our old self was crucified with Christ. The moment of justification, we were united to Christ. We were crucified with Him in His death in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We don't have to live in the bondage of sin. The purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the salvation that Christ provided through his death, is that we would be liberated from the bondage to sin so that we don't have to do that anymore. It's not a fatalistic battle that we're fighting here against sin, this continual battle. Here's what's happening then. When you put your faith in Christ and solely His work and what He did on the cross to pay for sin, by that faith, the Spirit of God, when you believe, takes you and places you in Christ so that His death becomes your death. We've talked about that in the last year and a half so many times. That your union with Christ means what is true of Christ is true of you. That his death to sin becomes yours. Paul said it explicitly. You are crucified with Christ when you put your faith in him. That is the, that is the perspective of the almighty, all-knowing God. That's what happened to you. You actually, his crucifixion and death to sin becomes yours. And Christ's crucifixion and death to sin did what to sin? It paid for sin eternally. It killed sin ultimately and eternally. That's what the death of Christ on the cross did. It once and for all time 
took care of the penalty of sin, absorbed the wrath of the holy God for sin. It killed sin, ultimately and eternally. And Paul says over and over again, beginning in Romans chapter 5, you died with Christ. That means his death is yours. That means your sin's been killed. Your sin's been killed. Your sin in Christ has been killed ultimately and eternally. Here's the point. We can only kill the sin in us that has already been killed in Christ. The only way that we can engage in this battle of killing the sin within is if we are saved, period. No sin can be killed in you unless you have accepted Christ, been united to him and his death has become your death because then the sin has already been killed and the only sin that you can kill in the present is the sin that has already ultimately and eternally been killed in Jesus Christ on the cross so that his death for sin becomes your death for sin. That's just a reminder that that has to be the basis and the platform upon which we approach the killing of sin. So what is it? What is it? I want you to think about the term, the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body. The deeds of the body are the fruit, right? They're the external evidences of sin. The deeds of the body are not the totality of sin. They're not even the essence of sin. What the deeds of the body are, they are the byproduct of something that is deeper Something that is inside, that began inside and erupted and worked its way out so that on the outside of life, the external, there is the fruit, the deed of the sin produced. But that is not the totality of that sin. In fact, it's not the essence of the sin. There's a principle deeper. There's a principle behind that that made that happen. So that what is the killing of sin within? It is to attack the root, not the fruit of the sin. The killing of sin is to attack the root, not the fruit. The killing of sin is root work, not fruit work. You could spend your time and wear yourself out running around trying to kill the fruit. What is fruit that's there? It's fruit that's already produced. It's a sin, the deed that has already happened. Paul is not saying here that you go around and every time you sin, then you try to kill that sin that you've committed. He's talking about something deeper than that. Because what would happen is if You had a tree out in your orchard that was producing poisonous fruit. What would be the thing to do? Just every time it blossomed and that fruit got ripe to go out there with your sledgehammer and just start smashing that fruit? I mean, is that the way to take care of the problem? No, what do you have to do? You have to do something about the root of that tree. You have to poison it or kill it or jerk it out of the ground. You got to go to the source of the problem if you're going to put to death the deeds of that tree. Or you'll be just futilely, continually just trying to kill what's already happened on the outside. 
What Paul is talking about here is he's talking about doing the root work in the killing of sin. Matthew 15, 18 through 20. Here's what Jesus said. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You see the point there? It's not what is external that brings the defilement. There's an inward problem. There's a heart problem. You see, sin, the principle of sin is a heart problem. That's the root. I mean, there's a lot of scriptures that say that. I mean, that's why God says, I'm not concerned about the outside, but I, God, look at the heart. That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How about this one? Above all else, guard your heart because it is the what? Anybody remember? It's the wellspring of life. That means it's what produces what comes out. So if the heart has this sin working in there, the byproduct, the fruit of that is going to be the external evidences of that in life. So what you need to do in the killing of sin is you got to get beyond the fruit work and get to the root work and go after the root of the tree in order to kill the sin within. So here's the first aspect I want to bring out about in general terms what the killing of sin is. The killing of sin is the constant weakening of sin by attacking its root. The killing of sin within in the believer's life is the constant weakening of sin within by attacking its root. Just picture it as a life-giving force, right? Your, your heart pumps blood to the extremities of your body and that blood carries the oxygen and the life that produces your ability to do things externally, to work and produce. So the killing of sin within means that you go to the store source and you stop the flow. You stop that blood from going up and providing the nutrients to produce the activity. You stop the oxygen from carrying forth its life-giving force. You stop that internally, deep in the heart, so that the fruit is never produced. Meaning this, killing the sin within means to stop the fruit before it's produced. It is to actually Cut off the lifeline in the heart, dealing with the principle of sin, seeing sin for what it is, not one sin, not one fruit, but the principle of sin and being against it universally so that you are constantly weakening it. And what happens the more that you cut off What would happen to your physical body? The more that you cut off the blood flow, the more that you cut off the wind and the air, what would happen to your physical body? It would get weaker and weaker and weaker so that you'd be more able to hold it down so that you'd be more able to get victory over it. It's the same thing in this principle of killing the sin within. You need to constantly be after the internal workings of sin in the heart. And when you see the motions of sin beginning to stir, you go after them right there in the heart, cutting off their lifeline, cutting off their airflow so that that gets weaker and weaker within. That's the work of killing the sin within general terms. The second point here, and I'll just conclude in a few minutes. Second point, really, maybe another way to say the first point or to take it a little bit farther, that killing the sin within 
is not only the constant weakening of the sin by attacking the fruit, but it's the constant fighting against the sin. It's the constant fighting against the sin. And to do that, you need to be aware. I'm not going to spend any time with this. We've already covered this. You need to be aware that you've got an enemy that's after you, that's seeking to deceive you and throw temptations in front of you. Don't be afraid of him, but be aware. But here's the point I wanted to bring out about him. What you need to do is you need to be aware of how he comes at you. This is really critical. You need to be aware of how he comes in a, in a one sense. He comes at all of us in the same way. He's got the same bag of tricks that he kind of rewraps for all of us. But the point is he has some specific way that he raptures. And what you need to be aware of is the ways that he's done that and been effective in your life. You need to be aware of his strategies against you that have been inroads that have produced uh, an eruption of sin inside that has resulted in the production of fruit of sin outside. You need to know how that's happened. Be smart, be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. I mean, God gave you a mind to think through this, to think logically, to think in knowledge and wisdom about this. Understand what your bent is, what your weakness is, how he comes to you. And then what you need to do is you need to, in your awareness of that, guard against that. Guard against that. Let me give you, in closing here, just a passage from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus points this out. Matthew five twenty-seven to 30. Worship team, why don't you come while I wrap this up? We're going to take communion here in a minute. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I want to submit to you, that's the fruit. That's the external piece of sin showing itself outside. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's the root. You see, the fruit has a root. The root produces the fruit. So Jesus is starting on the outside and he says, yeah, here's the way that you look at it. Adultery, you commit Adultery externally, but Jesus says there's a deeper problem. It's a heart problem, and it's lust within the heart. So based upon that truth, that sin is a root problem, then he comes to verse 29, the next verse, and he begins to tell you how to attack it. Listen to what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. You see, what Jesus is telling us to do here in the fight against sin is he's saying, Sin is an inner problem. It starts on the inside and then it works its way up and erupts and produces fruit on the outside. So here's what you need to do. He's not saying just kill the external by cutting off the right hand or gouging out the right eye. What he's saying is if that's what causes you to sin. In other words, what are the inroads to sin in your life? What are the ways that sin comes in and tempts you and gets you to succumb to its enticements? Whatever those are, cut those off. Cut off the inroads. That's dealing with sin at its very root when you are actually guarding against the things that actually bring the enticement to the heart. He said, don't even let that happen. 
Don't wait until it gets clear onto the fruit. No, stop it right at the gate. Stop it right at the gate. Cut it off right there. Don't even let it wander around in your heart and look for some traction so that then you begin to think about it in your mind and give it a little time and energy so that then all of a sudden it erupts into your actions and produces fruit. Man, if it's gone that far, it's already won the day. Start right at the very beginning, at the gate, at the inroad. That's what the killing of sin is about. It is about you treating sin as a principle of evil in your life, not just one external idea, but as an overall rebellion against God, and you are looking internally to guard against it and kill it on the inside so that it can't erupt and become fruit on the outside. That's how you put to death the deeds of the body. You do it as a root work. Stopping it there. So next week, what we're going to look at is we're going to talk about the specifics as we wrap up this series. Just a few specific things that you do in your battle to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Would you please just pray with me and then we're going to have the ushers come and serve us communion. Very fitting that we would do that to conclude the service. Communion is two symbols, broken bread and, and juice. And that broken bread is a picture of the broken body of Jesus Christ. The body that he willingly sacrificed. In fact, the body that God accomplished the sacrifice of. That is the truth of Scripture right there. Ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, it was the Holy Father who killed the Holy Son. It was the predetermined plan of God from the foundation of the world to slay the Son to pay for sin. Yes, there were evil people involved in that murder. But ultimately, it was the hand of God that held the hand, that held the mallet, that drove the nails. So when you take communion to reflect and remember that this sacrifice of the Holy Son is what it costs to pay for your sin. It was the death of Christ that had to be paid to adequately pay the price for your sin and mine so that we would put to death the sin within that has already been put to death in the death of Christ. So as we take communion, you remember that. Ask God to help you see that clearly and to see sin clearly and to give you both the desire, the will to put it to death and then the power to carry that through in the Spirit. Father, I just pray. Pray that you just help settle the truth, plant the truth that we've talked about this morning deeply in our hearts. And that there would be there would be good fruit from it. The fruit of just the ongoing, continuous putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. As we come into this last week here, I'm asking that you would just bring revelation to us, to me, to us, about that process in our own life. Help us to see what we need to see understand what we need to understand so that we would be able to walk in the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 13, and by the Spirit be putting to death the deeds of the body. God, to help us to walk in that power of the Spirit toward that end for your glory. And as we take communion here, help us to see, understand, the price that was paid to make that possible in Christ's name. Amen. Ushers, you can pass the elements as you get those.
follower of Christ, you can take and receive those.